When we're bringing raw milk into our homes, whether it is through a herd share, shopping from a local raw dairy or co-op, or if you have a cow on the back pasture, it is inevitable that we start wanting to value add that milk, both adding nutritional value to it by culturing it in our homes and adding monetary value by making raw milk into what would be higher priced items from the store. In this episode, Robin, who is the creator over at Cheese from Scratch on Instagram, is here to teach us about creating our own cheese starter on the counter at home and producing naturally fermented cheese in our own kitchens. She makes it all so approachable and straightforward. We also recorded an after show episode where we covered some more advanced aspects of cheese making, as well as information on raising cows, choosing cows, milking cows, and just cow things in general. You can join as a patron today to hear this episode and, as of this recording, about 80 other bonus episodes and after shows just for supporters of the podcast. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, Ancestral Kitchen listeners. This is Andrea, and I'm here not with Allison today, but with somebody else. I'm here with Robin. Hello, Robin. Hello. How's it going? I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I know that you are not unknown to many of our listeners because when I posted, does anyone have questions for Robin? I got a ton of questions, and a lot of them were really specific to you. (laughs) And (laughs) A lot of people said, just tell her that we love her. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So, yeah. So, Robin is here. She is the owner of Cheese from Scratch brand on Instagram. Is it cheese underscore from Um, underscore scratch? Yeah, underscore underscore is under everybody. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Behind everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Cheese from scratch. Yep. So cheese from scratch, and we'll link that in the show notes also. Um, so you guys can go check her out and follow her if you aren't already, which I know most of you are. And Robin, something that people said was, she just makes me want to eat cheese all the time. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that in my notes. But yeah, uh, I did you, see that, yeah. <laughs> you make us all want to eat cheese all the time. <laughs> I know we eat an absurd amount of cheese. That's what we're here for. We're literally... Yeah. That's the program we all want to sign up for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Robin, first off, we usually ask everybody, what did you eat last before we hopped on together? Well, I um, would like to say cheese, but I actually can't. <laughs> the, really, the truth is is coffee. Not even with cream, I love just it. black coffee. I love it. I love it. Well, you yeah. could say what you had for dinner last night. Oh, okay. But that's fine, it too. It still wasn't cheese. I went to my mom's for dinner. We, we had steak. <laughs> Ah, that's lovely. Yeah, that's good. Another byproduct of cheese is steak. I had cheese for lunch, though. Oh, cheese for lunch. I love it. What kind of cheese did you have? I had mozzarella. Yeah. Mm. I had um, had a quesadilla with mozzarella. Oh, oh, that sounds good. It was. Can you just not even tolerate cheese from like a package at this point? How does that? No, I'm actually like, I can go for, I can go for any cheese, really. Like, I. So I grew up on like crap cheese, like on um, craft uh-huh. cheese. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I grew there. up on that. Like, um, I grew up on like cheese whiz. Do you guys have cheese whiz in the states? Um, probably. Like, cra- I, I've never had it, but I've, I've definitely seen it like in movies and stuff. Yeah, I grew up on like that kind of stuff. Um, so like I still sometimes to this day I don't buy it, but still sometimes to this day I get like a little craving for craft cheese whiz and I actually have a homemade recipe for it so I make it (laughs) I saw uh, that okay I saw that the other day you you had posted in your stories like your daughter was eating cheese whiz for lunch or something you're like I can't even be mad (laughs) yeah exactly that's good for you (laughs) so cheese whiz is uh, um like a cheese in a can right and like it comes out like whipped cream basically it's uh not in a can it's like in a jar and it's like a liquid Uh, well it's no in 
in the like the craft stuff that they have is like a rubber but um a rubber like homemade yeah it looks like it really <laughs> is similar it's like a it's a cheese spread but um uh, like the homemade stuff is kind of like fondue but you let it cool almost like you oh. can just like dip your bread in it but um when it's you cold you cool. can dip your bread in it um you when it's cool you just like spread it on toast or whatever uh, okay all right yeah well that's yeah, interesting so that's- yeah, it's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, those are important. Yes, um, exactly. It's surprising how um, many recipes I see that call for things like Velveeta and things that are these yeah. super processed cheeses. You're like, wow. I guess I didn't And it's funny, I was actually just um, yesterday looking for, I was looking for a cucumber salad recipe through one of our family um, cookbooks and like uh, there was a recipe that fell out onto the floor and I grabbed it and it was a rice casserole and it was one that oh. like we used to eat all the time and it had cheese whiz in it it had uh, cream of condensed soup in it and <laughs> like I, I was just like whoa how times have changed <laughs> like, yeah 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 not all all things that you could um make at home but it's funny yeah. how those super fast throw it together in five minute convenience meals when we try to recreate those you know, in our kitchens with our you know, milk that we just brought in from the bucket and things like that. You're like, this is like a two hour labor. This is not a quick exactly. thing. Later so, on, we'll talk about clabber and then I'll tell you how you can make all those things with that. <laughs> oh, I'm into this. I'm into this. Yeah. If you're into ancestral eating, you'll know that liver is a superfood full of vitamin A, K and a whole host of B vitamins plus many essential minerals. It has a truly exceptional nutrient profile and is a staple of traditional healthy diets. But it's not always as easy to get liver into our lives as we want. Getting a good supply, knowing how to cook it so it actually tastes good and getting all of our family to eat it. These things can be hard, especially when we're busy or traveling. That's where Andrea and I turn to liver capsules. They give us the incredible benefits of liver without having to worry about the sourcing, the preparation, or the eating. One Earth Health produces organ capsules from 100% grass-fed New Zealand-raised cattle. As a podcast listener, you can get 5% off and free shipping by using the link oneearthhealth.com forward slash ancestral kitchen. And each time you order, you'll also be supporting us to keep on making the podcast. Details and the link are in the show notes. So, yeah, yeah, awesome. so I, I polled the audience before we started yeah. and asked for questions. And I'm thinking for this episode, this conversation, um, the, the primary question that we want to answer, which is literally... Uh, what you talk about every day on your Instagram. So people go check her out. Um, is I will just say I'm the, I'm the average person right now. I buy raw milk. I want to make things at home out of my milk. I want to value add my own milk so that I can enjoy good cheeses, but also not go broke completely. And then in some places in the U S and then we have a lot of listeners in Europe too, but they have different kinds of access to cheese than we do. But in a lot of places in the US, it can be hard to find really good cheese and things and butter even. Um, so you're left with either buying the stuff you don't want to eat or you have to make it yourself. So, um, and then I myself have one milk cow. And then I know there's a fair number of our listeners that also have milk cows and always learning how to make something new out of all that milk that's coming in the door twice a day would be phenomenal so you're the perfect person for us to talk to (laughs) yeah so I was I was thinking about kind of categorizing like beginner intermediate and advanced and the beginner being I just started getting raw milk you know other than pouring it on cereal what's next right and then I would say intermediate is somebody who's been making butter kefir you know things for a while and they want to make cheeses and then our advanced, I would say, someone who's been making cheese for a minute <laughs> and they have more fine-tuning questions. 
Yeah. So if we just cover, we'll just kind of go through the questions that I sent you. Um, sure. Starting from the top and, you know, starting to talk with our first person who will say is somebody who, if if I'm showing up at your door and I say, I just started getting raw milk, uh, what do I do <laughs> other than just drink it? You know, where do we begin? And let's just go from there. And I just want to hear what you have to say. Sure. Sounds good. So I think value adding to your milk that you're getting, especially when you're buying your milk, is kind of a two-part question. It's almost like you have to think about two things, like value adding in terms of financial or value adding in terms of um, nutrition, because we know Mm -hmm. that every product that we're going to be able to make is going to be like exponentially more nutritious than what we can get in the grocery store, specifically in the States, maybe not so much in Europe, but, um, or maybe, maybe there's some better products in the States as well. But, you know, as far as just being able to buy just craft cheese versus being able to make it at home, it's going to be so much more nutritious to make it at home. Um, but there's definitely cheeses that lend to being, um, being more financially, you're able to make them because cheese does take a lot of milk. So I'm not going to tell everyone that's buying milk to go out and make cheddar because, you know, to make a good cheddar, it's going to take you two or three or even four gallons of milk to make anything, um, anything that's a lot. Usually you're getting like from a good, um, from a good producing milk cow, usually you're getting about one pound of cheese per gallon of milk so I know people are paying like I think somebody told me once that they're paying like $20 a gallon for raw milk somewhere so if you're paying $20 a gallon for raw milk it's mm-hmm. it's not gonna be a good idea to be able to make all your hard cheeses and stuff but there's definitely right. cheeses um that you can that you can make and dairy products that you can make that um that will still um that will still be good for you to be able to um, afford to make really. <laughs> so yeah. probably, yeah. So probably like if somebody came up to my doorstep and said, I want to like add value to the milk that I'm getting, I would tell them for sure to make yogurt because yogurt, I'm, I'm pretty sure everywhere you could just, you could make yogurt and you could still save money on making yogurt. At home. Yeah. And the cool I, thing about I yogurt is you kind of, oh, sorry. I just said, I agree. For sure, mm-hmm. looking at the prices down here. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and yogurt, you get almost, if you want to make like strained yogurt, then you get two products. You get yogurt and you get whey. Or if you want to just keep your yogurt whole, then you get all that whey in your yogurt. So um, yep. it, there's no waste with it, really. Whereas with hard cheese making, where you're getting so much whey and there's just no way no way you can use it, um, right. you uh, end up having a lot of waste and you basically throwing away your money. I'm sure people are using it, but like for me, there's no way I can use like four gallons of gallons. every day <laughs> in my kitchen. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's too much. Yeah. So yeah. definitely yogurt's the first stop. Um, I, I mentioned before about clabber. I keep um, like a sour milk culture on my counter and uh, I feed it every day, just like you feed a sourdough starter. And uh-huh. um so I think that everybody that has access to raw milk should be keeping clabber. And I don't even make yogurt anymore because I use clabber for it instead. But um, I use clabber for everything. I use it for it as like a cheese making starter culture. I use it to like thicken soups and stews. Um, I use the discard to make cheese. Like so there's so many different things for it. Um, so clabber is a really good first starter thing for people to start keeping as well. Yeah, let's. Let's actually make camp here for a minute with uh, mm-hmm. the clabber. Let's just sit here because I was introduced to clabber, although I didn't know the, I didn't know the name of it at the time, but by a friend who grew up in Kenya, and she said, "Oh yeah, just leave um, a half a gallon on the counter with the lid on, and then you shake it every once in a while." And we were living in a hot place at the time, so um, it would ferment pretty quickly. And yeah. I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" You know, it's like the easiest. Yeah thing I've ever made. So let's talk about that some more. Explain yeah. clabber to everybody who's listening. So it's it's like it's like the best kept secret of cheese make. I don't know. <laughs> like it's yeah. amazing that more of us don't know about it because it's um I've only been keeping clabber culture for 
Well, I kept it a long time ago and then I didn't do it well. And then I restarted keeping it um, about a year ago. And it's like, where has this been my whole life? Because um, mm. I literally have replaced most of my fresh dairy products with it and still use it for cheese making. So clabber culture is I leave raw milk out on the counter, just like you said, um, and it will coagulate eventually. And which once it coagulates, that means that those lactic bacteria that are in that raw milk, they have um, started to feed on um, all the lactose in the milk and they've started to ferment that into lactic acid. And once it's acidic enough, it will coagulate. And so once it's coagulated, then you're going to take a little bit of that clabber culture and you're going to feed it to new raw milk. And now that what you've just done there is by feeding it to new raw milk is you have added these bacteria that are well-fed, you've added them into that new raw milk. And so they're going to be ready to go. They're going to feed on that, um, on that new raw milk. You just fed them brand new food and they're going to ferment it a lot quicker. And so every day I feed it. And um, at first, like when you first put it on the counter, maybe it's going to take mm, two, three, four days to actually coagulate. But now that you feed it every day, it's going to take maybe 12 hours to coagulate. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So, so it really, and it's strong and healthy um, and it tastes yeah. good after you've fed it for a long time. It's kind of like sourdough starter. Like, you know, it just gets better with age and it gets better when you take care right. of it. And that's the same thing with clabriculture. And it would not work with ultra-heat-treated milk. Would it work no. with thermized milk? Like pasteurized, like just regular like, pasteurized, like heated, like heated to one fifty. There's some people down here who sell it. Okay, I didn't think so. No, it, it has right. to be raw milk. You could feed it that though. You could feed it thermalized mm, milk, but yeah. um, eventually you'd probably want to give it a little dose of raw milk. Some good um, fresh, yeah, yeah. Like it's kind of like I don't know. You guys, you've probably kept a yogurt culture for a while, so. Mm-hmm. With your yogurt culture, you keep it for a while, but eventually it kind of peters out and it doesn't do as yeah. good. I think um, my guess is that if you were feeding it with, you start it with raw milk, but then you're feeding it with pasteurized milk, eventually it will sort of peter out. It will get contaminated by um, other things in the environment. So yeah, feeding it raw stronger. milk really, yeah, mm-hmm. really feeding it raw milk really helps it to stay strong. But um, you can feed it pasteurized milk or um, if you have to, just to get it through and you can also refrigerate it you can also freeze it so you can so you don't have to feed it every day and that's yeah yeah so when I um, went to the modern homesteading conference I took my (laughs) clobber with me but then I was also really worried yeah I did (laughs) I had to use it for my presentation but then I was also really worried about that if it didn't make it or if it broke in the car so I froze some of it and it um it didn't it was like it wasn't even frozen when I came back I just put wow. some ice cubes in or like some I had it in ice cube trays and I just put it in the jar and uh, after it like unthawed I put the milk on it and it was coagulating 12 hours again insane uh, but yeah if you wanted to travel with it you could probably freeze dry it make it into a powder and then feed yourself you you probably could road. um I don't have a freeze dryer but I've talked to people and they I don't um, have one either yeah I just know people have them <laughs> I just know that um, you have to have some sort of heat with the freeze dryer, right? Um, and so I've talked no about idea. this with a few people. Like there's, I don't know what the heat is for freeze dryers. I think it's minimal, but you would definitely be killing some of the bacterias by um, by freeze drying it. And yeah. the one kind of cool thing about, so different lactic bacteria, they like to thrive at different temperatures. So even if the freeze dryer runs at a really low temperature, a lot of times I'm feeding, like I try to feed my, clabber warm milk from the udder but a lot of times I'm feeding it cold milk from the fridge and I'm still having it coagulate um so there's definitely some low loving temperature cultures in there and I think mm. you might kill them off if you freeze dry yeah you're probably right yeah but you can for sure freeze it uh, like freeze it and um uh for refrigerate it for about a week is usually before you have to feed it again well clabber is that's a phenomenal product because yeah like you said in your book and on your Instagram, you use it to start lots of different things. And then it doesn't, you don't have to go buy special tools or cultures or anything like that. You just need a jar and a lid. And yeah, exactly. you're on your way. <laughs> that's amazing. So everybody's like, that's doing a, Clabber now. <laughs> everybody's doing Clabber now. It's a new thing, except for it's a really old thing. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah. I had always read about it in old books. 
you know, yeah. like about the Revolutionary War down in the States and things like that. And everybody always had clabber. So I had this vague idea that there was something out there. And then the first time we made it, I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, I have to look this up. Is that what this is? (laughs) I know Zach's. uh, So my husband's mom, uh, she says that her grandma used to keep um, sour milk on the counter and she didn't call Mm. it clabber. She just kept sour milk on the counter and used it for everything. And she just had it in this one jar. And um, like my assumption is, so I think that there's a little bit of loss in translation thing because you see a lot of people keeping clabber culture or keeping clabber now. Um, Uh But you see almost everybody is, uh, starting it from scratch each day. They're just putting like clean oh, raw milk starting on over. the counter. Yeah, and it takes a long time. And sure. you're also um, not more at risk for um, to have a problem, but sort of. So if you feed your yeah. clabber every day, you're keeping those bacteria strong. You're keeping the ones strong that you want, and it's going to be safer. So a lot of people that are worried about like. Like, it's kind of shocking at first to think, oh, I'm just going to put raw milk on the counter and leave it there. Like, that's shocking for people. But when you feed it every day, just like a sourdough starter, you are keeping it healthy and safe for consumption. Yeah. Yeah, Well, you've got those really obviously the strong strains because it's been producing so well for so long. And so just giving it that leg up. Yeah, exactly. And and it would be something native to your cow and your area, of Mm -hmm. course. Yeah, exactly. There's a... Oh, no, I was going to say there's a uh, kind of a queso sort of a thing that uh, Ruth Ann Zimmerman makes. Yeah. And she calls it Schmerkes, which I don't speak, I don't know what that is, Pennsylvania Dutch or whatever, but I assume that's yeah. like smear cheese. <laughs> yeah, it's so, really close to that cheese yeah. was that we talked she about. Starts but it, like, yeah, she starts it with a clabber. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It is really good. So I, I actually haven't ever tried it, but... Um, she uh, put it on the Milkmaid Society for me, so that was cool. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. You would start people with clabber. I guess butter is another easy thing to do because you don't have to go anywhere to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, butter is an easy one. Sometimes, though, when you're buying milk, because you can't control what you're getting, sometimes yeah. people struggle with butter. So I, um, I agree. Yeah. So, like, that's a, a good one, but if you're, like, pulling your hair out trying to mm-hmm. figure out why your butter's not turning it's probably it's not you it's, it's not you. the milk yeah so I'll, i yeah. tell a lot of people though make sure that you're warming or letting your milk um or your cream warm up to um actually can i segue for a minute <laughs> yeah. Do it. so there's a couple things segue. that um, that people that have never made butter before and are getting this raw milk that they struggle with so first off is they're not um they're just dumping the cream off. They're not actually skimming the cream off. So that's really important. Uh-huh. You have to skim your cream off um, or you're going to have too much milk salts in there and it's going to take too long. Um, people don't let their uh, cream warm up on the counter. So you got to let it warm up to almost a little bit below room temperature and then it will churn in like one minute because um, I know you know this, Andrea, but um, just like uh, lots of people, they just churn it from cold because they that's how they make whipped cream and stuff like that. But it's really hard on your machine. So well, it's like also I make what mine. everybody's been taught that everything yes, has exactly. to be cold all the time. You have to be cold or like, and probably they're putting the blender or their um, mix masters in the freezer, you know, that kind of stuff. But oh. yeah, it's got to be warm to churn. So make sure you warm it up. And then I just read this and um, I thought it was kind of interesting. So um, with some uh, one tip is if people can't get their butter to churn, if you put a little piece of butter into your cream, no. then um, and then it will like uh, and I haven't tried this myself, but it makes sense. It will um, if the fat globules are a little bit larger and they're because uh, different just different animals have different size fat globules. So if the especially like um, goats, if you've put your milk through a cream separator and you have goat cream. Um, <clears throat> If you put a little glob of butter in there, it will um, the fat will glom to it as it as it spins around in there, and then you'll get your butter to turn faster. I bet that that is true because when I make butter, I'm usually doing it in my Vitamix. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. Oh, I do mine in my. (laughs) Everybody's like, if you're not turning it by hand, are you really making butter? (laughs) Yeah. Like, well, I don't know what it tastes like. It so I'm happy. Yes, exactly. It usually is room temperature because by the time I finished skimming and then got distracted 10 times, yeah, 
it's all room temperature. But yes, I've noticed the first batch goes right along and then the next batches are faster. But of course there's butter stuck all inside the churn. So that yeah, makes a lot of sense. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So I'm into it. A little tidbit. Yeah, it makes <laughs> sense. Anyways, so lots of people struggle with butter. So if you're struggling with butter, it's probably not your fault. It's probably the cream. So those are some tips. Mm -hmm. to try would you like more support to help you eat cook and live ancestrally if so come and check out our community at patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast we've got so many goodies over there that will help guide inspire and support you in this journey we're taking together there's our exclusive podcast where andrea and i talk more intimately about what's happening in our kitchens and lives there are so many after-show bonuses, downloads, extra audios and resources. We have a forum where you can ask and answer questions. And we even host a monthly chat where we get together and talk all the ancestral kitchen things. We love cooking and eating this way. And this community and library of resources is what we would have wanted when we started out. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast to get started. Would you, I, I wonder if butter is kind of like cheese where uh, I feel like when I was just buying milk, I didn't actually make a whole lot of butter at home. Yeah. I had and a couple I, good sources that I could buy it from. And then I used the cream for other things that I felt like were more. Yeah. Unless you are having like really epic cream lines. Oh, it's, I don't know if it would be percent. worth it to make your own butter at home if you're buying your milk. like. It takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of milk to actually, um, or a lot of cream to actually make um, an amount of butter. So it's uh -huh. one of those things where you like, when you have a milk cow, you're like, oh my goodness, there's so much butter. I love this. But <laughs> yeah. when you don't, <laughs> you know, there's so yeah. many other uses for cream. You want to be able to make my ice cream and like all the things. So yeah, um, there's, there's definitely, um, there's some, some things that come along with having a cow in milk culture that don't really exist outside of having a cow. Mm -hmm. um, one of which is the feeling of drowning in milk all the time. Yes, and exactly. <laughs> you're like ration out milk. What are you talking about? Yeah. But um, like all the whey and stuff like that, you know, I, I did a post the other day and I tagged you at the end of it. Cause after I wrote it, I was like, Oh, this is, yeah, this is Robin. But um, she said, you know, well, if you buy a cow, then you have to get a pig. <laughs> of course, because you need something to eat all that way. Um, but yeah, definitely. If you were buying milk, you would probably be trying to find more ways to utilize those things in the house. Yeah, just things like that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Like it, it, yeah. It, a cow is part of a network when she's on a farm. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, especially like if it's a farm that's not selling the milk, like we don't sell milk, we just have it for us. So yeah. we really um, use the product within the framework of the farm. So some chicken feed is soaked in it, pigs get some. Yeah, um, it's definitely like the milk cow is kind of the center of the homestead, really, if you think about it. They've totally. got their finger in every in every aspect they really of do. it almost. Yeah. yeah. Or their hoof. I, I really feel that because she... She fertilizes the grass, which is where we put chickens and then turkeys. Yeah. And then she comes back again and does it again. And yeah, um, all the other animals chores are kind of centered around her milking time. And yeah, so, so There's yeah, you've got that. Magical about it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the, um, well, lucky you, you've got, you know, gallons of cream in your fridge, but then also, yes, but I'm the person washing the buckets and going out couple times a day so yeah um, the the trade-off is definitely there um but yeah. you do pay for it yeah it's definitely a commitment but it's I, I yeah it's there's something about it something about having a milk cow it's amazing mm. something yeah. to strive for if you're if you got a homestead and got the land for it and got the time for it yeah absolutely but 
but it's cool um, that there's so many herd shares popping up and not so much. That's I'm amazing. sure there is in Canada. People just can't talk about them in Canada. But um, sure. like I hear a lot more popping up in the States. So uh, we're actually yeah. in the Milkmaid Society. We're covering how to set up a herd share in October. And so we were sourcing people to um, to guest right on the Milkmaid Society for it. And um, one of the ladies I was talking to um Belvedere Farms, Raylene from Belvedere Farms. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. Um, has 75 people in her milkshare. That's amazing. Cool. Think yeah. about what she's doing for her community. That yeah. is such a gift. And I know you said you've heard people paying $20 a gallon for milk. I, I've definitely had people tell me they're paying anywhere from $6 a gallon to $35 a gallon. Wow. Um, so where you are, it, but, but it's largely dependent on where you are. So when you're mm-hmm. paying you know, $700 per acre or you're paying um, $5,300 per acre is yeah. going to have a big impact on what you're paying for your milk. Yeah. And then it probably is going to impact what you're earning anyway. So it's more or less going to stay relative in a way. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, anybody yeah, who you... questions the the value of that, um, go take care of a cow for a couple of weeks. Yes, exactly. Although $35 a gallon, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And and if people are paying $35 a gallon, I like, I do have to caution that, you know, there's no guarantee anytime you're working with ferments that, that you're going to have success. And so that's that's something that you have to weigh that if Mm -hmm. you're paying $35 a gallon and this batch of yogurt doesn't turn out or it gets contaminated, like, is that something you can stomach kind of thing? Yeah, because it's absolutely true. Yeah. I would say that the most expensive prices I'm hearing are in Oregon and Hawaii yeah. right now, wow. um, which kind of makes sense because those are some expensive places to live. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and so worth it for your family. the The benefits, man. Yeah. The benefits. Yeah, yeah. Doing the it's good that you mentioned. Um, somebody actually asked, "What? Did, who? Where was that question?" Maybe I didn't type the question. Oh, no, I did. How many gallons of milk do you need for various types of cheese? There are some things that are more one-to-one, like you said, like yogurt versus um, cheese, which is more like two-to-one or something, depending on the cheese. But being able to look at your prices and kind of gauge if it's worth it for you. Yeah, exactly. And so like some cheeses are more expensive, Um, to begin with. So like um, I say that feta and brie are really good cheeses to make if you were buying milk because um, those cheeses are sort of expensive in the store and they're ones that you're not going to be, you're going to get a a lot of value out of a little. So like, I mean, a a batch of brie from a gallon of cheese, I could make four little brie's and those brie's, if I was going to go and buy them in the store, that would be like a crazy amount of money. So but then there's also that added risk of what if it doesn't turn out? What if um, what what if this batch is contaminated? You know, those kind of things. So you do have to weigh that. But um, those are definitely the two cheeses that I tell people if they're buying milk, um, try and make those cheeses. That's a great point. And those are in your yeah. cheese board book. Yeah. As, um, not, not the feta one, but the feta one. If you sign up to my brie. newsletter. Yeah, the brie ones okay. in the um in the Christmas cheese board ebook, and then the feta one is free if you sign up to my newsletter. I send you like a booklet of beginner cheese okay. making recipes. So there's like yogurt and butter and feta in there, and mozzarella. Even though mozzarella is not a really a, a beginner cheese, but I put it in there. Yeah. I'll throw the link to that. I saw you had the citric acid and the clabber culture mozzarella in the book, didn't you? <clears throat> I think you sorry, was that? I I lost you for you, a second. Oh, you had both your mozzarella's in there, the one you start, the, the one with citric acid and yeah. the one that you start naturally. Yeah. In the uh, Christmas cheese board ebook. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the one that you start that. naturally is like the best thing ever. And the of course citric acid one's okay, but <laughs> yeah, the clover culture one is like, it's like out of this world mozzarella. It's good. Of course. One thing that you notice when you are doing ferments at home, and we definitely discuss this and hear people talk about this with Allison does beers and things like yeah. that and she doesn't use inoculations for them and one thing you start to notice is the sterility of flavor that we're left with when we buy things off the shelf and we don't have that complex nuance flavor that you get when you have wild ferments and nope. things that are evolving constantly i'll put i'll make sure that i put the link to your cheese board book 
in the show notes. Um, I have okay. it sitting in front of me. And I was telling you before we started that I printed it off because we know I like things printed. Um, yeah. But you put, this is like a giant book. This is huge. It's yeah, like it 80 is. pages or something. Like it's huge. Yeah, it's so. it's a substantial book. Yeah, I was actually, yeah. so um, this is the second one. I was going to, I released one the first year that I started business and um, uh-huh. it had like similar recipes in it. And then I, like my plan was to do one every Christmas, but I'm, um, I, I released last year's again this year because I'm actually writing an actual book yeah Um, I'm so excited about that I can't wait yeah so I'm too busy writing that to do another Christmas one so that last year's is out I find a lot of value and I'll bet our listeners would say the same I I love things that come from you know there's a lot of chefs that come up with really great ideas and things like that but I really love things that come from a woman in the home just like me because I realized that it's something that she's woven through her life yeah. Not something that she shows up at six o'clock and then when she leaves, somebody else shuts down the kitchen type thing. Yeah. Um, like it's actually part of a lifestyle. Yeah. And so it seems to mesh better with my life when I read books by somebody like you versus yeah. um, just a textbook on cheese or whatever. Yeah. It's funny because like sometimes I um, feel sort of imposter syndrome. Like I'm like, how yeah. could I be a cheese maker? You know, I'm not going... <laughs> I'm not working nine to five, making cheese kind of thing like that. But um, just the other day, I was watching a video on um, some traditional cheesemakers in Romania and they're making their cheese in like their shepherd's hut. And I was thinking, you know what, this is like, they are cheesemakers. I would never question in my mind that they are cheesemakers. So why do I question in my mind that I'm a cheesemaker? And so I think everyone should take that home with them. You know, like you're making your cheese in your home for your family. Like you are a cheesemaker. That's cool. I love that. And I would say, yeah, that's definitely something we all need to hear. Yes, exactly. For sure. So let's say now we're doing clabber, sometimes doing butter, making yogurt, milk kefir. Um, so we're doing some basic things. Um, introduce us to the idea you've said mozzarella, brie. How hard are cheeses to make? And a couple of the questions that popped up was um, included. <laughs> you make me want to eat cheese all the live long day. <laughs> that was one of the comments. Um, yeah. How many gallons for various types of cheese, which you kind of touched on. And um, what is the easiest cheese to try making that uses rennet? A few people asked, can I only use fresh, che- fresh milk? for cheese or can I what if I want to use up like two day old five day old you know 10 day old milk and somebody else asked what to do with milk that's been sitting in the fridge for three weeks so so I guess we're getting a little bit more into the zone of people who've had milk or are getting milk for a while so could you run through some ideas there sure sounds good so let's start there let's start with um can you make cheese with old milk so um I don't make cheese with old milk anymore I used to make cheese with like milk that was maybe like five days old, um, things like that. And I just saw that I was having more and more contaminations. So um, the thing is that you can make fresh cheese with those older milks, but if you are planning on aging it, if you think that that milk has sat in your fridge for that many days, that raw milk, it has all sorts of different bacteria in it and yeasts and all these types of things. And so those guys are getting to feed on the food that that milk has to offer while it's sitting in the fridge. So when you go and you put your culture in it, whether it's your clabber culture or your freeze-dried culture that you bought at the cheese supply website, it's a lot harder for your culture to actually have enough food to eat and also to be able to get a hold in that milk because okay. all of those other little guys already got a hold. So I say don't make cheese with milk that's older than two days, like raw milk that's older than two days. And if you are mm-hmm. making cheese... With milk that's older than two days, like there's so there's some risks to that that you will have it contaminate that things will happen um, a little bit quicker because cheese making recipes they're sort of built to work with milk that is fresh and so um, you see a cheese making recipe that says add in your culture and then wait an hour or add in your culture and you run it and wait an hour and then stir for an hour you, you know so that is built for milk that is like a clean slate that hasn't been acidified at all. 
um, because in cheese making we're following like a pH line. We're following like in high school where you learned about pH and acidity and all that kind of things. Even though we don't test that in our cheese making, that's what we're actually doing. So anytime it's already a little bit farther down that pH line than when you started, um, then it's just that much harder for you as the cheesemaker to help it get to its destination um, right. on time kind of thing. I think you put some bell curves in your book, didn't you? Did I not see some graphs? Yeah. Yeah. yeah those are pretty nifty to look at. I like that. Yeah. So um, that was David Asher when he taught... I, <laughs> had the opportunity, uh, opportunity to learn from David Asher, who wrote the book, The Art of Natural Cheese Making last summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he was t- teaching us about clabber culture, he used a bell curve to explain it. Um, and it really, it just like clicked in my mind because I had used, I had made clabber culture for cheese making before and I'd made some really, really bad cheeses. Like they were gross. Feed it to the <laughs> chickens kind of thing. Um, and so I could just like sworn it off. I was like, like, there's no way, like, this This is a, a load of hoop. Like, you can't make cheese with clabber culture. And then he explained it with these bell curves, and it really helped me to understand. Um, kind of like with sourdough, you have the rise and fall. So with clabber culture, you have your coagulation, and then you have your over-fermentation. Um, so using those bell curves, it really helped to kind of understand what that meant. I love that. Bring to mind your kitchen. Now imagine it full of expert women fermenters ready to teach you everything they know. Vegetables, salumi, drinks, kefir, dairy, sourdough, vinegar, koji and much more. The Fermentation School is just that, online, in your kitchen, whenever you want. World leading female educators sharing their incredible experience in video courses that will guide you step by step through your next fermentation project. Ancestral Kitchen Podcast has teamed up with the school to offer its 60 plus courses to you at a 10% discount. When you say yes, you'll also be supporting the work Andrea and I do as you skill up. Go check out their courses via the link in the show notes. I'm betting there's something there that's going to get you really excited. Happy fermenting. Your book is also a really cool thing in your book, just to harp on it for a second, because I really enjoyed reading through it, is how you, it's called the Christmas cheese board and how you set it up. So you start selling it in August and then you have it, a countdown basically of weeks. Here's what you need to do to pr- have all these cheeses done by Christmas. And, um, you know, you could start this one really early. You said, you know, say the Colby can just sit and get better. I think you said, yeah. um, and then other ones you can do closer. I, I like the way that you sort of geared it. around. Yeah. and as soon as the hay's in the barn you do this and there's all these set patterns for foods and things and uh with the factory food mentality we've kind of lost that for sure rhythmic um sort of pulse so I like the way that you reintroduced it with the idea of a Christmas cheese board I think it's brilliant yeah exactly um it's it's funny because it's kind of outside of my cheese making season because we do have sort of a rhythm and a pulse to um our cheese making season and usually I'm making cheese in the spring and um and I'm making cheese now with nice summer you know summer grasses and stuff like that so it is kind of um going with that but uh yeah but there is a seasonality to cheese making for sure definitely to go back to the fresh milk for a minute here in Washington state, and I, it probably varies from state to state, but if you're selling licensed milk, it has to be tested and it takes at least 24 mm-hmm. hours to get that turned around. So most yeah. people get milk that's 24 to 48 hours old if they're buying it basically as quickly as you can get it. Yeah. And most of that milk is all going into a speed chiller right away. Yeah. Um, would you feel that that was sufficient for cheese making 
I, I would. I wouldn't like put all your eggs in one basket of um, in terms of making all of your milk and cheese, just knowing that you might like. So I used to make cheese with milk that was older than that was like five days old. And a lot of times I would have good success, but then sometimes I wouldn't. Um, but if it is going into a rapid chiller, it's being um, it's being handled um, at a cold temperature the, until you get it. Then the chances are of um, of you having a problem is a, a lot less. Yeah. So yeah, milk is the the faster you can get milk cold, the better for anybody who's listening and wondering. It comes yeah. out of the cow a little warmer than like a human body temperature because cows are a little warmer than us. Mm-hmm. And then a standard in the states is forty two degrees in under forty minutes if you're licensing your milk. And the reason being that at a certain point, every minute that the milk sits, then your bacteria multiplies by a certain, you know. Yeah. You think of like, um, so if you make cheese with freeze dried culture and you, or if you look at a freeze, Mm. um, even if you look at the recipes in that book, you'll see that like the, the amount of culture that you need is minuscule. It's so tiny. Yeah, and that is point. the amount that's able to culture your milk for cheese making. So say yeah. you have a speck of dirt or something in there, like it doesn't right. take much and it's culturing your milk with that unwanted bacteria. It's not always necessarily dangerous bacteria. It's just unwanted. No, and just a different yeah. flavor maybe than you wanted. And that's yeah. exponential powers. So yeah. when you just think about in that, in those terms, it's it can it can take over pretty quickly and you get it some really, really funky can. ferments. Like, what is this? Yes, exactly. I love it. Yeah. Okay. And like, oh, sorry. No, you go. Uh, and you go. I mean, I know most of your listeners um, are getting their milk from um, herd shares, but like people that have their own milk cows, if you're able to like take your milk and strain it and then put it right into your cheese pot, like you're able to make really, really good cheeses if it hasn't even had a chance to get cold, if it's like a lot of times it. I'll bring my milk up from the barn, I'll strain it into my cheese pot and I don't even have to heat it up. I just like add my rennet in and I'm good to go. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's kind what of like, a good a, point. yeah, in nature, you know, that little calf um, is taking the milk from its mother's udder and it's putting that milk into its stomach and is able to make it into cheese right there. And that little calf depends on that natural process of being able to turn its mother's milk into cheese. So the closer we can mimic that as cheesemakers, the easier time we're going to have making cheese. For sure. I, I think I have seen you talk about that, how you said more and more that you're just doing it that way. And I love mm-hmm. that idea. Um, you just have to, you know, it's just part of the schedule. You know, at eight o'clock when I come in with this, the pot's already on the stove. I'm ready to go. And yeah. if if somebody's reading cheese recipes or yogurt a lot of things say, well, I guess yogurt, you'd heat it higher and cool it back down. But a lot yeah. of times they say, you know, warm your milk to 98 degrees, which is, yeah. you know, more or less cow body temperature. So, um, yeah, that totally makes sense. Or it's about the temperature the milk is once you get it out of the cow's body into the bucket. Yeah, So exactly. I love that. That's, and that's going to save you some time. It'll save energy cost if you're, if you've got a wood stove or um, propane heat or whatever, and you're not running quite as much I love it yeah exactly and you think about like you know cheese has been made around the world like everywhere around the world for thousands mm-hmm. of years and like they they're just using what they got and um sometimes yeah. they don't got a place to heat it they're just making it out of the milk that's straight from straight from the udder absolutely one of I'm thinking about your clabber where you said you use the starter culture. And then when you said, you know, around the world, it made me think of, I have a red gourd that one of my friends brought me back from her home in Namibia. And she told me, you know, oh, my job when I was small was I, mom would put the milk in here and I would have to shake it. And then we would hang it. And then every time you go by it, you just kind of whack it. So it kept moving (laughs) all the time. Oh, that's amazing. And she said, yeah, we would pour the milk out. And then, you know, when it was, um, she didn't call it yogurt. I don't remember what she called it, but uh, they would pour it out, you know, it was thickened basically. And then they would pour in more milk. So it was getting started with their pre-existing mixture. So. Hmm. And I think that's sort of um, the piece that got lost. I think, um, I think I 
didn't finish my thought before when I was talking about how that's the piece that got lost in translation that grandmas when they were keeping it on the counter like they were adding it back into the same jar so they were always culturing it um like every day it was getting cultured and starting a lot quicker so um you know right. like exactly that in our um modern industrial kitchens then we like to sterilize everything again yes. and again so we would tend to get a clean jar <laughs> yes exactly I do still get a clean jar but like it it wouldn't like it's kind of like um I feel like it's like the thing where some people that start sourdough starter they always use it in the same jar and some people that start sourdough starter they always get a new jar so it's like you know an optional step <laughs> okay you alluded to the calf's tummy so let's talk mm -hmm. about rennet um yeah Somebody asked what I, I didn't write down everyone's name, so I can't remember. I'm so sorry. But what is the easiest cheese to try making that uses rennet? And yeah. maybe you should also talk about rennet. If somebody's trying to access rennet and they're not butchering calves and they don't have a calf stomach, then maybe you should um, elaborate a little bit on choosing rennet. Sure, well. sounds good. So yeah. rennet is, um, and so for people that don't know, rennet is an enzyme that um, is found in the lining. Well, one type of it is found in the lining of young ruminant stomachs, so calves or goat kids or lambs. Um, this line, uh, this enzyme is in the lining, and when that milk comes into that little calf stomach, not only is it nice and acidic and warm in that environment, but there's also this rennet, and it helps it to coagulate almost instantly. You know, as soon as that milk touches, comes in contact with that rennet, it starts working. So rennet allows us as cheesemakers to be able to um, coagulate our milk a lot quicker, which is important in cheese making um, because again, like I said before, you're following that pH line where if you're waiting for your milk to coagulate by acidification alone, just like that clabber, it's taking a, it's a, taking a long time and that cheese is really far down the pH line by the time you finally get that coagulation. So we add rennet early on in the process so that we can start to manipulate our cheese um, early on. We can start to cut it and stir it and do all of these things to it to help um, kind of help it along that pH line at the rate that we want as cheesemakers. So that's my backstory on what rennet is. It also comes from, um, you can get it from vegetable sources. It can be made in a lab. There's microbial rennet. Um, so all sorts of different types of rennet. But um, because I'm trying to mimic what calves are doing in nature, I usually use calf rennet. Um, I love it. Yeah, so... That's what rennet is. That's the backstory on rennet. So probably mm, the easiest cheeses you could make with rennet, and it kind of goes back to if you're using a little bit of milk, would probably be feta cheese, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And even um, if you weren't keeping a clabber culture, if you were just using raw milk alone, you technically could probably make feta cheese, but um, I would definitely either get a freeze-dried culture or it just helps you kind of have that insurance policy that the bacterias you want are going to ferment that cheese. Right. Can you describe a basic cheese making process? Sure. Sounds good. So for, uh, for let's go with, for feta. So um, I kind of start all of my cheeses the exact same way nowadays that I use clabber. Um, this is actually what I talked about like my whole um, speech in the uh, Modern Homesteading Conference was about how I really do just mimic what a little calf is doing in its in its stomach um, from the first four steps of my cheese making recipes for no matter what cheese I'm making. So um, no matter what cheese I'm making, I put my milk in my pot, I warm it up to about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So this is a temperature that's conducive to help the rennet coagulate later on to help um, the bacteria that I'm going to be adding to um, ferment at that temperature. So once I warm my milk up to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, I add my clabber culture and I add it in at a ratio of one part clabber to 50 parts milk. So if you were making, um, I just figured it out the other day because I usually kind of wing it, but um, I think nice. if you're making a six gallon batch, it's like two cups of clabber. Um, okay. So yeah, that's the ratio, one to 50. And then um, you're adding in your rennet. You always have to dilute your rennet because um, your rennet, it starts working as soon as it hits that milk. So if you don't dilute it, then it's just going to work on the little bits that it hits there. So you have to dilute it right. so it spreads throughout the pot. 
And then once you stir your rennet in, you're just going to put your lid on your pot and then you come back in about 30 minutes to an hour and your liquid milk will have gone into a big, big old curd mass in there. And so now this is where cheese making recipes start to differ. Like some um, cheese making recipes will, um, for like drier cheeses, like um, Alpine style cheeses, they'll have you cut the curds into really small pieces. Like you're even using a whisk to cut them. Um, wow. Wow like moist cheeses like um, feta or um, any any more moist cheese, you're going to be cutting the curds a little bit bigger. Um, certain cheeses you're going to be stirring for a certain amount of time. Some cheeses you're not going to barely stir at all. Uh, so there's all sorts of different things that start to happen after that. And I tell people, you know, it's really intimidating when you look at a cheese making recipe and you see all these different things, but don't Try not to be intimidated by them. Try to just think of them as like steps in a recipe. Because like when we first learned how to make bread, you know, maybe we didn't understand what a, a stretch and fold was or a proofing was. We didn't understand what those words were, but we did them and they just became sort of steps in a recipe and it just became easier over time. So I tell people, right. make sure if you're going to make a cheese, just pick one cheese and make that cheese like over and over again for a little while until you really get those steps down and really understand what they are. So you're not having to, you know, YouTube every single time. Um, and that's going to make cheese making a little more approachable for people. Yeah, that what you just said reminds me of something you mentioned earlier when you said you kept making them and then they were really bad. You had to feed them to the chickens when you were doing the clabber starts. Yeah. And <laughs> a, a really necessary element to farming generally. And I think success in the kitchen and certainly with dairy products is perseverance because <laughs> there's a lot of things that you look at someone and you're like wow they're just I guess I'm not as good as them but they people aren't going to see all those blocks of cheese and the gallons of milk and the hours of milking it took you to get that milk that went exactly. out to the chicken pen and the yeah. frustration behind that at times is yeah palpable <laughs> exactly but, and like it takes, so you, when you think of like cheeses that are made on um, these farmsteads in say Europe or around the world, like they have specific cheeses that they make. They don't make all of the different types of cheeses. So it does take a little while to figure out what cheese it is that really works well for your homestead, for your aging setup, uh -huh. um, for wh what you have access to kind of thing like that. So the idea that we have to um, make all of the different cheeses is a very North American idea, I think. Um, we don't have to make all the cheeses. Yeah. We can make, you know, the cheeses that our families are our family is going to eat, that our families like. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you can still experiment and try other ones, but like your flagship cheeses are going to be the ones that your family likes and that work really well in your Absolutely. homestead. Yeah, when you really go deep into a lot of um, ancestral diets, then each region, typically there is just like you said, a few flagship cheeses. There'll be a few core ones that most everything revolves around. Like if I say feta, you say Greek, you know what I mean? Yeah, Everybody exactly. has something. And that is an idea, the, the constant variety is certainly more modern in a lot of diets where a lot of people, if I, I have a lot of friends, I remember observing this once to Gary, a lot of friends from India or Africa. And when you go to their homes a lot, they really make this, they're, they're still eating very culturally, ancestrally, the way that their mom taught them. Yeah. And they make the same thing over and over and over and over. And they, and they yeah. never miss a meal and they're never late and they're never yeah. frustrated trying to think of dinner. And I always think, oh, the freedom in that the freedom yeah. of like here probably the most common complaint is trying to decide what to make for dinner yeah exactly <laughs> because it has to be new and fresh and different and exciting every single time yeah and that's like something um if you are like buying raw milk and you're trying to get that value out of your raw milk is to think that um you know, like, what are the recipes that my family eats? And how could I take this dairy and incorporate it into that? Like, what dairy items are in this meal? Um, and how can I keep those on hand? Because if your right. family just doesn't 
eat yogurt and they never eat yogurt, like it's, <laughs> it's not going to add value to make yogurt for your family. I mean, you're just going to end up with a white jar in your fridge. And I just cleaned up my fridge yesterday. So I know all about white jars. I saw fridge. that. It looks beautiful. <laughs> yeah. it was I, so I clean. had to show it on Instagram. I was, I was like, proud. Look, you'll never see it. There was like probably 10 jars of half like usually it was clabber, but like 10 jars of like little coagulated white jars in there, you know? So yeah. Um, oh, to add value, you have to be able to use what you're, what you're making. And if you don't have a milk cow, it's yeah. not feasible to have 10 jars of half used white stuff that can go to the chickens. <laughs> the chickens will love it, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just adding value to my chicken eggs. <laughs> it's weird because we, we say that in canning too. And it's yeah. weird that you even have to say it, but don't can foods that your family won't eat. And it yeah. sounds pretty, like, rational when you say it, but then it's not really what happens. But it is, like, you get, like, the, um, during canning season, you know, like, you're like, what can I put in this canner next? Like, you just, it <laughs> yeah. gets on, like, a little bit of a high. And that's the same show. thing with cheese making. You're like, what could I make next out of this dairy? So I Which totally is nothing, nothing wrong with that, for sure. Yeah. And sometimes that's how you find the thing that becomes... Mm -hmm their ritual exactly. or maybe you're like we only do this every other year so I make double or whatever but yeah. um it is nice to know the things that your family really loves and yeah keep them keep them in supply and then it streamlines you as as a milkmaid your activity in the kitchen is somewhat streamlined instead of always feeling like you have to be researching a new recipe you can just automate what you're doing and yeah, exactly. It's kind of like if you have your, you know, your recipes that you make during the weekdays for dinner, you just know how to make them. You don't have to look them up. Yeah. And that's the same thing with cheese making. It just becomes your recipe that you know, and you know how to fit it in your lifestyle really well, because that's a lot of thing. Um, big part. I've said this lots of times. So if people are listening that have heard me talk before, they're like, oh, she's on about it again. Um, but like, Good. it's, it's a big thing to fit cheese making into your lifestyle to figure out, you know, like, do I really have to stand here and stir these curds for 40 minutes? And the answer is yes, but, um, or for certain recipes, yes. But you, when you're able to know how to fit that into your lifestyle, like you're like, I'm going to add my culture in and my rennet in, and then I'm going to go out to the garden for an hour and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to stir curds while I'm helping my daughter with homework or what you know like things like that you just figure out how to fit in your lifestyle really well yeah well that's brilliant yeah well there so we had a few more advanced questions but I'm thinking let's let's put those in the after show more sure. questions about salting wheels and stacking your salt and, or salt stacking cheese and things like that Ooh. <laughs> um but let's Let's wrap up this main feed episode. Is there anything else that you, well, well, first of all, let me tell everybody if you're thinking, yeah, I want to dabble in this, go grab her cheese making book. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's, it's very inexpensive. It was around nine or $10 US, right? And uh, no reason yeah. not to get it. Yeah, It's 20, but 20. Still. Okay. Still. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's perfect. Just, just and, like a gallon of raw milk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the value is permanent. These are skills yes, that exactly. you'll, you'll learn this, get it into your head and um, have it for the rest of your life. And you've also mentioned the Milkmaid Society, which I wanted to say something about that here too, which is your community for not, maybe not just people. Do you have people in there who don't have cows? Or is it um, I have people that like are wanting to get cows. Um, okay. It's mostly people that have cows or have goats. Um, oh, uh, and goats we're even, too. Okay. We're expanding into like uh, doing a little bit. Um, we haven't done yet, but we have some months booked for sheep and for water buffalo too for next oh, year. Oh, how exciting. But, yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, so goats and cows mostly and people that want to get into having um, dairy animals and then also just a lot of cheese making stuff in there. So potentially, I mean, you could join and you would find a lot of value, I think, in it, even yeah. if you didn't have a dairy animal. Um, but mm -hmm. it's definitely geared for people with dairy animals or that I love want that. to have dairy animals. Now, that's something interesting that you said. The The most commonly used milk in the world is cows, but the second most common is water buffalo. I, I think um, I, I think it might be goats, actually, the most commonly Does used milk. Has it changed? Has it shifted? I don't, I actually don't know. I, I, always, thought always, it, I always thought it was, was going to be goats second, but when I 
was researching for our raw milk episode a few episodes yeah. back, I was stunned. I was like, wait, what? But then I thought, oh, you oh, would you would know better then. Yeah, because there's um, whole other countries that that yeah. I haven't really spent much time in. So, yeah, I know that a lot of people use goat milk um, and goat milk in the U.S. Are... I'm sure goat would be the second in the U.S. Yeah, for sure. In the U.S. Yeah, I think in other parts of the world, though. But, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know like either. Is, I feel like you know better than I do. I don't know. It was on the internet. So. It. Yeah. That's <laughs> like where I get my information too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. Amazing. Well, that's cool. So the Milkmaid Society then is, um, that is definitely a group I want to jump into also. Now that my yeah. cows registration, I think I open registration every season. So it was open in July. So I'll probably open it in October. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I think uh, probably October 1st, usually I open it first. That'll be the perfect, perfect time to go in, um, going into winter. I'll have a little more, that's when I do more of my studying is in the winter. Yeah. Like I don't really read anything online in the summer. I know (laughs) it's hard in the summer. There's so much going on. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's, let's end this here then. And, um, anything else you want to say to the people? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I think just, yeah, I think, I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah, you did. And if you guys want more detail on all of this, I'm telling you, her Instagram is very, it's very, it's very encouraging. You know, sometimes you go on Instagram and you're like, well, I guess I suck at life, but your Instagram, (laughs) you, you phrase everything so well that I feel stronger when I read it. Like, yeah, I can. Oh, that's nice to hear. (laughs) (laughs) well thank you robin this was outstanding Um, Uh, thank thank you for for having this with me thank you so much for listening we'd love to continue the conversation come find us on instagram andrea's at farm and hearth and allison's at ancestral underscore kitchen Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.